This episode is brought to you by Bluescope, proud sponsor of the Lifetime Achievement category in the 2022 Sustainability Awards. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Melodic, and today we have with us in our virtual studio, Chris Nunn. Chris Nunn is a sustainability expert with over 20 years' experience. He is Head of Sustainability at AMP Capital Real Estate, uh, which has a capital real estate sorry, which is a real estate portfolio, should I say, valued at approximately a small, lazy $28 billion, from what I've heard, consisting of approximately 100 shopping centres, offices, and other industrial assets. Chris has worked five years as an environmental lawyer for Mr. Ellison, followed by an environmental defender's office uh, in Sydney, where he was awarded a, I believe it's called a Chevening or Chevening Scholarship to study a Master's of Sustainability at the London School of Economics. He then spent five years working in London as Associate Director of Sustainability for Atkins, and in 2011, he came back to the lovely sunny city of Sydney, or the rainy city of Sydney, as a sustainability leader at Norman, Disney and Young, where he worked as and then he worked rather as a sustainability leader for JLL, joining AMP Capital in September of 2015. And of course, he's also the winner of the Lifetime Achievement Award at the 2022 Sustainability Awards, which were held just recently in November, which is why he's here. So welcome to Talking Architect and Design, Chris Nunn. Good morning in the language of the Aura people. Hello. Thank you for that kind introduction, Franco. Um, so tell me, look, that's, that's actually pretty impressive. Like you have some serious sustainability qualifications there. Um, so what led you to the path of studying and working in sustainability? You know, you you work in what, from what I've noticed your whole life in, in a very, very corporate sandbox, as it were. Um, why sustainability? Because it really... I mean, you obviously wanted to be the least popular guy at work, right? Because sustainability <laughs> up until up and look fairly recently. So why? Why sustainability, sir? Yeah, I guess back in nineteen ninety two, I was a impressionable sixteen year old, uh, and sort of became aware about the Rio Earth Summit that was happening at the time, which you know, barring the 1987 Brunton Commission, the 92 Earth Summit was really the foundation, the kickoff of sustainability globally, where it really leapt onto the world stage. And I was just a young guy at that point studying geography, thinking, wow, this is cool, uh, super interesting. And I guess I was interested in it from those days. And then when I got to uni, uh, I wanted to do environmental studies uh, in, in complement to my law degree. It was like, okay, I better do a law degree. I've got to do something that's going to earn me some money, but I'll pursue my interests and do environmental studies and sociology with my other undergraduate degrees. And um, yeah, then, then graduated and became an environmental lawyer, which, you know, was trying to find that balance of having a purpose, doing something for the environment, but also, you know, having a good living. Uh, earning a good living. And then uh, I sort of thought, well, as I was sitting in the chair doing environmental law and, and litigation solicitor roles, uh, the sort of corporate sustainability movement had emerged. And I was like, right, I want to get onto that. I want to be at the forefront of this new thing, corporate sustainability. And so I did that master's in London with a view to moving into sustainability consultancy or advisory or some sort of front end work where I was actually 
you know, persuading people to affect change and influencing business decision making. And, and that's really what I've been chasing ever since is the ability to uh, affect change and, and have an impact through the really powerful force that is business, right? Yeah, okay. So chasing that sustainability drag. So tell me, um, look, I'm going to ask you, this is, this is again, you know, my, my famous dummies questions. And I'm going to ask you this because I... I I noticed that in, in one sector of, of Australian business, sustainability means somewhat slight, something different to what it does in, let's say, the, the, the built or architecture and design part. So on that note, what does sustainability mean to you? Yeah, I think that's a really good observation, Branko, that um, the definition of sustainability in Australia really has evolved uh, over my career. And it started as, I think, ESD, ecologically sustainable design in, in our world of buildings. And then it became sustainability, which was a bit broader. And then it's become ESG, environmental social governance, which is broader again, I think. And, you know, that's incorporated more of the social dimension and more of the governance and regulatory dimension, policies, processes, et cetera. So I think it's an evolution of the same concept. But for me, you know, that that time I spent in London was really influential for me. And um, I got to hear some really amazing world-leading experts speak. And one of them was Jonathan Porritt, who at the time, he's a UK sustainability expert and he was at the time the, the chair of the UK Sustainable Development Commission, which is a government body promoting sustainable development in the UK, something we need in Australia, right? And his definition was, if something is sustainable, it means we can go on doing it indefinitely. And I just love the simplicity of that, you know, and the link back to global limits and the earth's carrying capacity. It really gets the essence at the the heart of sustainability. We can't go on like this. We've got to change. We've got to become sustainable at the very minimum so that we as humans, our lives can be supported within the carrying capacity of the earth to support us and have, for us to have fulfilling lives. And don't forget, you know, humans have lived in balance with the environment in the past. In fact, you know, for most of human history, that was our natural state, right? And I think Porat's definition really wins for me for simplicity. But actually the one I use at work and the one I really love is by people called Puran Desai and Sue Riddleston, uh, who were the founders uh, of the One Planet Living Framework and run a sustainability consultancy in the UK called Bioregional, who's done a lot of really excellent built environment sustainability work, and I've been really influenced by their thinking. Their definition of sustainability is a world where everyone everywhere lives happy, healthy lives within the limits of the planet, leaving space for nature. And I've used that One Planet Living framework in my corporate sustainability work since I became aware of it back in 2006. You know, it's this international sustainability initiative based on the idea that we all need to live within the limits of the planet's natural resources, which, again, has a beautiful simplicity to it. It's really clear. It's a clear way of communicating the simple fact that we need to live within one planet of resources. Um, and then they build on that around the various dimensions of sustainability we need to address in order to get to that simple end goal and they split that into 10 themes. It's a great framework, One Planet Living. Um, and who doesn't want to live a happy, healthy life within our fair share of Earth's resources? You know, for me, it's really appealing and it sets out this positive vision of sustainability that's personal uh, and yet has this, you know, broader societal change agenda embedded within it. Yeah, okay. That, that's really interesting you say that. I mean, I actually like I actually like the first one where it says we can keep doing something different. That's 
that 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 is appealing. The, the, the second one is actually good, but it sounds like Woodstock. Um, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean. A little bit too uh, ambitious, perhaps, for the realists in the room. <laughs> yeah, perhaps, but but see, that's that's the point I'm saying. It, it's it, it, there's this divergence. One sounds very much what what architects would would say and think. And the other one actually then goes off into this sort of broader but longer and, dare I say, meandering road, which perhaps encompasses a lot more than just, um, you know, whether it be design or manufacturing or whatever. It, it kind of talks about entire lives, you know, of communities, of, of people. The, 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 do you think there's there's a, perhaps a a, a a an issue with um or or, or there's, there's a fear of it becoming too sort of um encompassing that you, you can't a utopia that you could never get to? Well, we have to we have to strive for that, right? Um, we have to have that positive vision of what we're trying to do, and I think it does need to incorporate those social and environmental dimensions, and that's really the shift in the definition of sustainability that we've seen, right? Initially, it was energy, waste, water, transport, and now it's much more encompassing around human health and well-being, equity, diversity, inclusion, accessibility, social justice, uh, social impact, um, community consultation, process. Uh, it, it encompasses those human and governance dimensions more. And I think the real risk in corporate sustainability has actually been that those social and governance factors dominate and outweigh or we lose sight of the criticality of the environmental dimension because that's really the, the heart of it is that we've only got one planet that's how much resources we've got if we you know overshoot the lift carrying capacity of the earth from a climate or biodiversity perspective or water perspective then the earth can't support life on earth our lives uh, or any other species so for me the environment is the core um, but in order to get those environmental outcomes you have to solve the social challenge where sustainability has to be attractive and appealing to people because it's people who are causing these impacts. So if we can't get the happy, healthy lives within a fair share of Earth's resources, if we can't get the happy, healthy lives bit, we can't have the within the fair share of the Earth's resources part. So we have to solve the social problem to get the environmental outcomes, and that requires a lot of the G, the governance as well. Uh, yes, I'm going to rename this podcast when a utopian meets a realist. Um, I was going to say that, do you think then, on to go further on what you just said, um, that financial liability and fiduciary responsibilities in corporate sector will ultimately force all Australian companies to adopt a far more sustainable approach on, on how they um, conduct their business? Because you know, let's face it, money talks, everything else walks. So, um, and, and you know, you we've worked in the in, in sort of the, the 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 money, I guess, the insurance liability side for, for quite some time now, the legal side. Do you think that that, that financial liability and fiduciary, um, uh, you know, regulations will, will force sustainability, will, will make sustainability, I want to use the word force, will transform sustainability into into something that, that now is basically part and parcel of doing normal everyday business? Yes. Yes, I absolutely do. Um, you know, taking account of climate change is already part of director's duties under the corporation's law in Australia. 
ASIC, you know, the Australian Securities Investment Corporation Committee, ha has started aggressively prosecuting companies for greenwashing, making false or misleading environmental sustainability-related claims. So the risk of prosecution, of fines, of reputational damage and value destruction for companies is very real right now already under Australian law. And I think we will see more and more mandatory ESG disclosure requirements from government and continued pressure from investors, shareholders and the community stakeholders to for companies to transparently disclose their ESG performance, both good and bad. And I think this push for verifiable financial grade environment, social governance data and disclosure, it will not stop. And it will be financial grade. It will be part of what's called integrated reporting, where companies are reporting their core financial statements in the same financial report as they disclose their environmental, um, you know, positive and negative liabilities and opportunities. Uh, and we're already seeing the start of that with TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, where companies are voluntarily disclosing their climate liability under what is it going to cost me to transition to zero carbon? What are my physical and other liabilities, risks associated with the transition to zero carbon and adapting to the predicted impacts of climate change? That's already something that companies are doing under this global guidance, Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. And, you know, it was Biodiversity um, Convention of the Parties uh, a couple of weeks ago and, you know, TNFD, the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, is the next big corporate standard pushing companies to disclose our biodiversity impacts of our, you know, practices and supply chain. So I think uh, this will not stop and it will lead to greater transparency and more ability for regulators and the community to hold companies to account for their actions and claims, and it will require them to stick to the ambitious targets that they set themselves, like zero carbon by 2030. I'm Brent Kermelitic, and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews, and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. In your opinion, do you think that there is there is a or is there a difference between how corporate the corporate world where you where you are where you've spent most of your life tackle sustainability and how the rest of you know society, industry, if you like, business world does? Because um, with what you said there, I mean, there's there's obviously there's. <laughs> People are getting fined, or companies getting fined. I can tell you, there's uh, there's going to be changes in procedures, isn't there? Um, especially when shareholders get involved. But um, you know, do you think do you think that there's a danger of, of one part of the industry looking at sustainable tackling sustainability one way, and the other part going in a separate or maybe parallel even direction? And never the twain should meet. Do you think that there's, there's a there's a danger of that? No, I think they're very related. I think you know, obviously, businesses exist to make money. So sustainability and environment, social governance, ESG professionals working within companies like big real estate investment managers, we have to demonstrate how the sustainability issues we're recommending contribute to reducing costs, improving returns, and lowering risk. Whereas in civil society, the broader community, which ultimately 
that's what drives expectations for government action is the sentiment out there in the community. It's more about the underlying science and the actual sustainability issues. And, and ultimately, that they're the true drivers for sustainability action, both within government and within corporations. What can the earth support? What should society look like if all human activity was restorative and regenerative rather than extractive and depleting of the environment? And, and what is fair for people? So, you know, as Sue and Puran Desai put it, so that we can all live happy, healthy lives within a fair share of the Earth's resources. I think that's the underlying community sentiment and science and that underlying pressure from civil society and the scientific community reflected through, you know, advocacy uh, by green groups like WWF, ACF, Climate Council, etc. That's the source and motivation for action on ESG issues, the underlying science, the advocacy by the green groups, the magnification of that in the media, creating the societal pressure for change within government and companies. Um, and as sustainability professionals, we take that motivation, which we feel as individuals and members of society, we take that into the corporate context and we find the areas where the business interests and those community interests align. That's, that's our job, really. Where can the company still make money, save costs and reduce risk while also moving forward on sustainability? So our job is to continually push internally to increase action by the company to find those areas of opportunity which the company can recognise that are in the interests of its shareholders, their investors, the customers, employees and all their stakeholders and persuade the organisation to devote the time and resources to taking action in those areas. So I think that's the divergence is that the broader view is the more ambitious one and then the government and corporate view is a reflection of, you know, a subset of that about, okay, from a government perspective, what's politically acceptable and from a um, corporate perspective, what's financially viable of, of those broader expectations. But do you think that giving out awards helps or hinders those at the coalface? And, I, and, I'm, and I'm not trying to be glib there. I'm, I'm just wondering whether, whether, you know, awards are the right thing to do in, in situations like this, um, do you think that that, it, that it's a that it's, it's helped that it helps you to win awards, or what does it really matter? Oh, well, firstly, let me say I'm immensely grateful to be the recipient of this award. It means a lot to me personally, so thank you. And you know, I'm honoured to be the first non-architect to receive it. And you know, that's something that I've tried to do in my career. Is you know, in working in sustainable buildings, uh, initially when I was in the UK doing green building ratings, like applying the BRAM, the Building Research Environmental Assessment Method, you know, as my sort of first start in sustainable buildings, I learned a lot from the architects and engineers on the design teams that I had the privilege to work with, and I continue to do that. So I think we need more people who are prepared to be cross-disciplinary and learn from each other in the way that architects and engineers do and project management and cost consultants and all the other professionals involved in the design of buildings. We learn from each other and we we take those lessons and and you know go forward together so i think that's what i've always tried to do is is learn from my architect and engineering colleagues and i was i was actually the first non-engineer ever to be employed by norman disney and young um and so you know it's that's the kind of crossover that we need more of um i think and so look the awards they certainly help at a personal level it's really rewarding and validating to be recognized for a lot of hard work over many years so it's motivating for me. It inspires me to keep pushing on and do more and be more ambitious in, in my hopes for change. And at an industry level, you know, I think it's encouraging for others doing similar work. They see the public recognition 
of someone doing the same work they're doing, you know, green building, advisory work and corporate sustainability. And they feel good knowing that the industry recognises what they do, that people notice and say, look, thanks, keep it up. So I think we need all the levers we've got to affect change, the sticks, the carrots and the tambourines, you know, the awards. So I think we need those penalties, the threats, the litigation, the rules and regulation, the minimum standards, the director's duties, and the vilification of the bad performers in the media, the threats, we need those sticks. We need the carrots, we need the subsidies, the grants, the certificate schemes like the energy savings certificates, ESCIs. We need those reduced costs. We need to improve the returns. We need those incentives. Um, and finally, we need the awards, the conferences, the case studies, the positive media articles, the celebrations to encourage and reward the leaders to showcase their good work in the hope that others will replicate it. And we need those tambourines to motivate and inspire people uh, and to spread the, the good work that the leaders are doing. Let's talk about the future. Um, and I, I get different, different responses. Where do you think sustainability will be from a business perspective in, say, 10 years, five years even? Yeah, I like to think about 2030. That's when a lot of corporates have set their targets around. So I think by 2032, most business will be net zero carbon in operation and will be net zero across the entire built environment. We have to be, and in fact, it's entirely possible and that's cost-effective and achievable today. You know, me and my team of sustainability people at, at AIM Capital Real Estate, we got that entire portfolio to net zero carbon and we did it cost-neutrally relative to the previous cost of electricity, uh, including the offsets for the scope one emission. So you can do it. You can do it today. The whole industry will be doing it in 10 years, absolutely guaranteed. And I think the next big chunk of work is around net zero, including scope three. You know, importantly, in 10 years, I think we'll have clear solutions for zero embodied carbon buildings and really clear chain of custody disclosure of environmental and social attributes of the building products that we put in our buildings so that we can specify sustainable materials with certainty about where those materials have come from, what they're made of and who made them under what conditions. Uh, so we'll have, a, we'll have assurance that we're relying on sustainable supply chains. It, certainly, I think that'll happen within 10 years. And I think we'll be building buildings that are very conscious of the future climate that they will have to exist in. You know, we'll all be far more attuned to the harsher climate we're moving toward of more extremes, you know, hotter days, longer heat waves, worse droughts, worse bushfires, the risk of ember attack, the risk of smoke ingress, more intense storms with very high wind speeds, you know, really high wind loads on roof sheets and things, severe deluge, the drainage implications of the flooding and the sea level rise. And, and we'll be doing coastal retreat. We'll be moving back from the coast uh, where flooding from sea level rise will be making areas uninhabitable and uninsurable. Um, we'll be taking these things far more seriously than we are now in the design of buildings. And we'll have the information to support that, that decision-making. I think in the area of waste and circular economy, you know, there'll be a lot less waste generally in 10 years. You know, what we do dispose of, we'll have full recycling rates through extended producer responsibility schemes, which are already the law in Europe. You can take back a broken or used product to the point of sale for recycling and that will be the law in Australia too, imminently. You know, we'll have transparency on the environmental impacts of those products. We'll have labelling that lets us know the origins, you know, the environmental social impacts of the products we buy. 
and we'll be using entirely organic and compostable packaging for things. You know, we won't see plastic and styrofoam packaging anymore, which would be great. I think on water, you know, we'll have stopped over extracting water. And from a building's perspective, we'll be capturing and recycling a lot more water and distributing it to buildings in purple pipes. So the sort of infrastructure and, and we'll have dual plumbing in buildings uh, ubiquitously. Um, and we'll be much better at preventing pollution entering the waterways and oceans uh, through the stormwater system. You know, we'll be doing gross pollutant traps on all the stormwater drains um, to really stop that plastic pollution and that marine plastic catastrophe. Um, in the biodiversity space, you know, obviously we'll be doing green roofs and green walls and, you know, native landscape planting and all the good things we're already doing. But I think, you know, one of the things that we've tried to pioneer at Anchor Capital is a, a conservation reserve equal in size to the real estate footprint. And I think that will be ubiquitous. In 10 years, every company will either directly own a conservation reserve or they'll contribute financially towards conservation in proportion to the scale of their business and its impacts. Um, you know, in 10 years, from a transport perspective, um, EVs will have full market share. All new vehicles will be EVs. Uh, we'll be incentivized to actively retire any internal combustion engine vehicles early of fleets and, and other logistics and supply chains. I think there'll be a lot more bike lanes. You know, e-bikes are actually a real revolution in transport. And I think that'll be the thing that really tips cycleways and sort of a third the footpath, the roadway, the cycleway, the cycleway will become mu a much more important arterial transport network and we'll be doing a lot more around bikes and e-bikes. Um, and we'll be doing, you know, integration into transport-oriented development like we're already doing around hyperloops and high-speed rail, you know, as is now the law in France, right? Uh, Short-haul flights will be displaced by internal uh, uh, rail. And I think we'll have those kind of laws as well. From a health and wellbeing perspective, I think we'll be a lot more conscious of the health implications of buildings and our consumption. You know, a, a much more emphasis on good ventilation, which is one of the big takeouts of COVID, right, is uh, isolated mechanical filtered ventilation like we have in Passive House will be more ubiquitous um, because we'll continue to have pandemics and, and global disease. Um and I think that'll be the expectation of employees that companies provide those environments and build spaces that deliver these optimal, safe conditions and protect people's health. And then I think in the social space, companies are going to be held to account much more for their impact on the community. And there'll be an increasing expectation that companies can demonstrate those positive social impacts that they're achieving and tangibly measure them and then publicly report them. You know, that, and that goes for diversity inclusion um, and reconciliation. You know, I think in 10 years we'll have the Indigenous voice to Parliament at all levels of government and we'll be really incorporating First Nations culture and knowledge into the design of spaces and landscapes and, and doing a lot more Indigenous and, and social community consultation as part of the design process. And I think accessibility is something that's really underdone in Australia. I think in the future, in 10 years, we'll have a lot more accessible places. We'll really radically have elevated the importance of accessibility, both to physical infrastructure and buildings, as well as to digital assets, you know, the, the media, the, the online presence that, that we and our buildings have. Um, you know, I think we'll really integrate those ESG factors into procurement processes, the way we buy things. Um, and then coming back to our previous point, we'll have those globally consistent ESG disclosures uh, like we do with financial reporting. There'll be ESG balance sheets disclosing our carbon and biodiversity impacts at a corporate level, which, you know, 
many corporates that you know I'm I'm working with um, and, and our competitors. They're already doing that. You know, starting to disclose financial implications of climate change and biodiversity. So that's where I think we'll be in ten years. It's, I think it sounds ambitious, but that is the pace of change that we we need to make. You know, we will have made substantial progress in the next ten years. And by the way, we can do all of that that I just talked about right now in 2022. We don't have to wait till 2032. It's actually all possible right now and we just got to get on with it. This episode is brought to you by Bluescope, proud sponsor of the Lifetime Achievement category in the 2022 Sustainability Awards. The two things that really excite me are the uh, visibility across supply chains. Um, and I, ironically, the very first podcast in this that we did, talking architect and design, was um, to, I was interviewing the head of the supply chain council. So it was one of those things that really opened my eyes to supply chains, right, and, and what it really means. And of course, circular economy, which we've done a lot of, a lot of the reporting and also a lot of, lot of um, interesting articles on. But on that. And modern slavery is really helping with that. You know, like the idea that we've got to drive our forced labour from supply chains is really forcing us to understand our supply chains and where they come from. Because if you want to know if your solar panels have been made in Western China in a Uyghur forced labour camp, then you've got to know where they're coming from. So it's it's really, you know, modern slavery has really uh, jump-started that uh, environmental product disclosure uh, scheme, which was languishing, I think, as a niche kind of disclosure which required a lot of work now with the social dimension around labor rights we've got an angle that's that we can piggyback on top of modern slavery carbon impacts um, circular economy waste impacts as well as the social impacts and, and we'll just get a lot more transparency through supply chains which is exciting in fact it was only yesterday i was reading in herald that uh, they were talking about um there's um, some um, trend with, with, the, well, with some cosmetics uh, mica the use of mica to uh, like sparkle, something you and you and I, Chris, probably don't use. I mean, well, if you do, it's no judgment here, but I certainly don't. But what I'm saying is, it's something that you you really wouldn't think about, right? I mean, it's, it's you know, it's what one of those, you know, what I say, one of those things that's like, you know, like opening a bottle of water, for example, it's just a totally inane thing. Yet, it, when I when I read the the what's the word the you know the source of this mica and, and in India and how it's used, how child labour is used. It, it's appalling. So um, why I'm telling you that is, is that okay? As wealthy countries, West of inverted commas, Western wealthy countries, you know, developed whatever, highly developed, whatever you want to want to use, we can do that. Yeah, we what we've got the money, we've got the people, we've got the the inclination, and obviously from what you're telling me, we're going to end up with the legisl legislative. Um, backing and power to be to enforce this but what happens in, in other parts of the world that you know perhaps rules are a little bit you know uh, a little bit a little bit hard and fast you know there's not not that much oversight there's not that much enforcement you know, how do we overcome that i mean i know it's probably not not your remit i mean to, to control the world but how do, how do we how do we overcome that? Well, I think that supply chain transparency and disclosure piece that we were just discussing is the way to reach beyond national boundaries in terms of a building that we're building here in Sydney today. How do we have an impact, you know, beyond our Australian jurisdiction? Well, it is through that supply chain. So, 
if we're demanding full disclosure of environmental and social impacts of the products we're getting from you know other countries then that is directing our economic power to players who can verifiably show that they are doing the right thing and they are not um you know using forced labor or having adverse environmental impacts and by directing our economic power to those good players we are disadvantaging the poor players and ultimately you know shifting economies uh beyond our borders so i do think that supply chain transparency piece is hugely important uh in order to affect change in those third countries where it may not come from regulation or from civil society or or corporate goodwill but it can come through our purchasing power in in one funny way um we 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 get to sort of almost become colonial powers again but for good is that is that how i'm reading this <laughs> I wouldn't want to get mixed up with colonialism, which has been such a negative force through human history. But I take your point in that, you know, that's the power of global markets, really, is that um, every transaction, every consumer purchase, every decision we make in our lives, particularly as we go about designing and building buildings, which are hugely significant financial investments, those things matter and they have ripples through the broader global economy and and that is a way to affect change if you had the power speaking of power um what would you change about how we approach sustainably right now right here right now the one thing we've got to do it faster time is running out you know the climate crisis is here the biodiversity crisis is here waste, plastic pollution, forever chemicals, nuclear waste, persistent pollutants, they're out of control. We're producing more of them. It's getting worse, not better. We're all ingesting the equivalent of a credit card worth of plastic, five grams every week. The health effects of sustainability crises are becoming much more evident, I think, for all of us. Inequality is widening, not closing. We've got real challenges and there is urgency. You know, we need really strong action or we risk collapse and turmoil in our social and economic systems. And some people shy away from that kind of doom and gloom because it's debilitating or depressing. But for me, that's the essence of sustainability. You've got to look the challenges square in the face, you know, the unvarnished truth. Understand those challenges deeply and then find solutions. You know, if you shy away from them, if you look away because it's too hard or it's too scary, we are not going to find solutions. We're just going to keep going as we are. We need everyone or, or the majority of people to have the courage to realise the scale and urgency of these problems and work together to creatively find solutions. It's absolutely possible if we have the awareness and if we have the willingness to change. We can do it. We are very adaptable. Um, but we need to do it really fast. I guess we could start by stop having prime ministers walk into parliament carrying lumps of coal. Might be a good start. Well, tick. That's good. We did that one. That's good. We did change that one, didn't we? Apparently. Um, yeah. Back to you, Chris. What? I mean, your your career has been, um, you know, quite interesting, and, and and you know, I won't say deliberate, but it's certainly been structured in terms of in terms of your 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 growth in the area of sustainability. What is the next step in your career? Yeah, so after seven years at, as Head of Sustainability at Anchor Capital Real Estate, I'll be moving on in the new year. And I'm excited about that next challenge uh, to continue to push companies from within to do more, to become truly sustainable. 
and also continue to promote and advocate for greater ad- adoption of Passive House. You know, I've been on the I'm a, I've been on the board of the Australian Passive House Association, uh, and I'm currently on an, an advisory board of a company that aims to bring modular, affordable passive house construction to the masses as a volume builder. And I'm really excited to be part of that and see Passive House reach the mass market and achieve significant scale in Australia. So that's going to be a focus of, of my next steps is really scaling up Passive House. And, and that's something that I'm really passionate about as, you know, a, a really proven solution to deliver low carbon, healthy buildings. You know, it's it's one of those rock solid methodologies that just works it delivers every time and so i've got a lot of confidence around that method and i want to continue to promote and advocate for that and make it a big part of my next career steps bruce nunn head of sustainability at amp capital real estate and the winner of the 2022 lifetime achievement award at the sustainability awards thank you very much for your time it's been enlightening i've got to say it's been it's been it's been a great chat thank you for your time Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. This episode is brought to you by Bluescope, proud sponsor of the Lifetime Achievement category in the 2022 Sustainability Awards. I'm Brent Kermelitic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine.